Previously on Greetings from Allentown. Shawn Michaels is making guacamole out of El Matador. He is not. Look at the tights, they're green. Boss man, let his feet hit the ground. Flair wins it. Flair's the champion of the world. Flair wins it. What? Are you kidding? There's a lot more guys. A lot more still to come. From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rusting a division requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown as Tate in front of a live studio audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part two of episode 143 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today I'm going to pick up where I left off with a few addendums because of the choppiness of my laptop last week. More more on my laptop in a little bit, but I'll be picking it up at the halftime, as I called it, of the 1992 Royal Rumble match. In part one, I briefly went through the four matches before the Rumble and then one through 14, so... <laughs> from uh, Hercules at number 14 all the way back to the British Bulldog coming out at number one. And, oh, yeah, Ric Flair in between. He he did some stuff as well. But before I get into all that, let me get in my plugs real quick. You can email the show, greetingsfromdowntown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromdowntown. Give me a follow on Twitter at Pod. That is at Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, and you can listen to the other great shows on the Pro Wrestling Only Feed Worldcast out on Tuesday nights generally, and most of the time discussing World Class Championship Wrestling from 1983, but taking a lot of detours lately with the tribute to the Destroyer and some other things as well. You get the Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast looking at independent pro wrestling from the Pacific Northwest. Days of Thunder looking at WCW through the prism of the Thursday Thunder program and a lot more strong style story and other programs that you'll see drop occasionally in addition to of course this program which by the way i was able to take notes for three upcoming shows i'm going to be doing that are non-wwf and the reason for that is because i don't need to take notes well in advance for wwf shows i feel like i have a greater institutional knowledge of what was going on but if i'm doing something like i'll tell you what they were memphis from 1988 mid-atlantic from 1983 and a jcp show from late 1988 that uh, coincides around the time of the Turner buyout. So, uh, you know, with those, I like to do a little bit more prep work in advance. The only problem is when you try to watch YouTube by a swimming pool, it's like the ultimate first world problem. Like, wah, I can't watch NWA from 1988. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by by the pool in 80 degree weather it felt so silly like i want to travel back in time 20 years to tell myself like oh yeah you're gonna be sitting at a pool watching 1988 nwa with the midnight express and the road warriors <laughs> like oh okay so you, you so you're doing all right but florida i was told by my friend who lives down there he, he works in sports media that the area where we were which is delray beach 
is basically all old New Yorkers, which I, I don't know about that area specifically. Apparently, West Palm Beach, which is technically the media market, we got those television stations and not Miami. But the radio stations, holy shit, were they nuts for the Eagles, Phil Collins, and the police. I, I've never heard so much police in my life. I swear to God, you think that Florida was a police state. <laughs> Actually, it did strike me as a true police state when I went to a bagel place for breakfast. Because, you know, it is the home of old New Yorkers, as I was told, and I did get myself a good bagel there. But there was a cop waiting for me. He was actually next to me when I'm waiting for my breakfast sandwich on a salt bagel, which was delicious, by the way. And this this dude, and he's Delray Police Department, and he's, like, armed to the teeth with, like, two guns, I think a taser, like a billy club. Like, what the hell is going on in this community, which is, like, mostly, like, older people? Like, it, it, was, it just struck me as crazy, even more crazy than all the police I was hearing on the radio which was also labeled on the little screen because it gave the song title, Everything She Do Is Magic. <laughs> I guess they cut out the two letters to save space. But even though the place they were staying at is right on the beach, the water was so choppy out there, and nobody was going in the water except for me, and I'm getting knocked on my ass. It was like the ocean equivalent of Charlie Brown getting hit with the line drive and the Peanuts baseball comic strip, except my clothes weren't coming off. Although they might as well have, because they got filled with so much sand when I got knocked over, and I, I walk out of the water, it, it felt like I shit my pants, because it, there's like this load of sand underneath, and it's not filtering out at all. So you have to like get back, and then you, have, you know pull your pockets inside out, and then you're like reaching into your bathing suit and like pulling out sand and just kind of dropping it on the ground. It's really kind of disgusting and i look forward to going back there at some point because we have the damn timeshare <laughs> who knows probably trade it for something else in the next year but you know other than the pool and the beach you got mini golf but you know i i, I jobbed cleanly to my wife twice which was very very startling kind of like antonio Inoki getting squashed by vader back in 87 i think it was in japan it, it was kind of like that and that's the last time i will ever compare myself with antonio Inoki. So there are a couple things I have to clarify from part one, because of the choppy audio that appeared at about minute 44, which I apologize for, but hopefully my computer is a little bit more, well, let's just say well-rested after this, because I turned it off for the entire time that I was in Florida. It cut off at one point at, at around that 45-minute mark, where I was talking about the structure of the Royal Rumble, and I'm going to get into that on this, and I talk about it being the halftime when Flair eliminates Bossman, or more accurately, Bossman eliminates himself, and that's the halftime break. And I like Royal Rumbles that are structured, I was going to say like a football game, but it's almost more like a basketball game, where you, you got first quarter, second quarter, I mean, I guess it's the same thing, but I was thinking of it more as a basketball game anyway. You have the, the first quarter, and that's the point up to... Where it's not it's not just Bulldog and Flair and a third guy occasionally coming in. When Shawn Michaels hits the ring, that's pretty much when the second quarter starts. So that's number six. It's not going to be divided up like one through seven and a half and then seven and a half through 15. You know, there, there's a certain fluidity to it. Clearly, though, halftime is where I cut it off and Flair is in the ring. And then we'll, of course, get the third and the fourth quarter here. And you're trying to build this crescendo at the end, which 
As I said, it's the perfectly booked match, except for the one thing at the end. But there's a very simple fix to do that. And it's okay the way that it turned out. Even if them trying to retcon it on the syndicated TV really sort of pissed me off and turned me off to the product, quite frankly. Just in thinking about it after. It also cut off on me as the Bulldog was being eliminated by... Flair, who then eliminated Tornado right afterwards with the same sort of backdrop move. That's where you get that that moment where everybody is kind of hurrying out of the ring because they know they got to get that one-on-one spot in the middle with Flair and who's coming out next. And at the end of part one, I was going through the This Is Your Life Ric Flair that I had compiled for all 30 in the match, and it skipped immediately from number nine, Kerry Von Erich, Texas Tornado, to number 12, Nikolai Volkov. And we missed number 10, the Repo Man, for which I had very little. I found one picture of the two of them together. And I think it was something going back to their days in Minnesota, because that's where both of them are from. But also, Ric Flair was on a Repo-style show called Lizard Lick Towing in 2013. Which, if you don't remember that, don't worry, because I literally had never heard of that show before, and it's really a stretch to connect that with Repo Man, but hey, that's all I got. And number 11, not so hard to stretch anything with Ric Flair and Greg the Hammer Valentine, because he was a regular tag team partner of Flair in the late 70s in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, but also... As I mentioned, I had looked at a Mid-Atlantic show from 1983. They actually do a promo together because they had an upcoming match at the Final Conflict Super Show in March of 1983. So I just wanted to tie up that loose end, and I apologize for the audio getting chopped up. I don't know what the hell happened. I think it's because whenever Kaspersky on my computer like is updating, Audacity just goes absolutely batshit. And there's very little I could do about it. So I always make a point to check, oh, yeah, it's it's not updating at this point. And I'm glad that, it, glad that it's not because I ran through everything on the Sunday morning after I got back, which, uh, you know, I kind of check everything. I had gotten my wife an iPod Touch for her birthday. And as it turns out, it did not work with this laptop because I had not updated iTunes in so long because there was some program, some Apple software update thing that was screwing up. It was blocking anything from ever being updated for the last couple of years. So I had to take care of that this morning, which is something that I had just kind of been putting off for two years. But thankfully, that's done. So hopefully I can, you know, maybe not have to get a new laptop for a couple of weeks. But again, if you have any suggestions for me, please reach out to me because I'm just kind of looking at like, oh, this has 12 gigabytes of RAM. It's like, okay, all right, yeah, I don't, I don't entirely know what that means. I don't need something where I've, I've got to play games on it or anything because those gamer PCs. I don't really need that. I just need it for this, quite honestly, and maybe for, you know, downloading music and that sort of thing. So anyway, without any further ado, why don't we just get right to it, part two of the 1992 Royal Rumble. Take a breather. This is Chad Sonny. Listen to me. Get a little Take your time. Take your time. You got seven seconds. Oh, you're seven hurting. Sucking, trying to get that oxygen in that body. And here comes Roddy. Oh, double. Of all the people, anyone but Piper. It's Piper. 
kind of want to backtrack on my basketball analogy from earlier and go with football because, well, I know the sport <laughs> a little bit better. And also, I think it applies here as they come into the second half. Piper coming out to face Flair alone in the ring, one-on-one for two minutes, is like a kickoff return for touchdown to start the second half of a game that was still pretty damn good in the first half. We're going to turn it up just a little bit. Flair, by the way, when he's in the ring by himself, he just kind of does the flare flop apropos of nothing. Like, I'm completely exhausted. Flair gets a lot of crap for his psychology in, well, one-on-one matches. But you cannot criticize the way he played this because he he's completely exhausted at this point. But he's only halfway home. So it's really driving home the point of what he's going to have to go through to get the world title which he proclaimed himself the real world champion and that's the whole story we're going going with the facial reaction when he sees that it's piper coming out and yeah with without music you lose a little bit as i said in part one if the bagpipes had started playing that would have been even cooler but flair's facial reaction to when piper is coming out and this is probably the best one-on-one you could have other than, of course, your hot feud with the Macho Man and Jake, which is coming up a little bit later. The crowd is going absolutely insane. And I shouldn't undersell the fact that the crowd in Albany was very, very hot on this night. In part because you're guaranteeing that you're going to stay, they are going to see a new world champion crown. Flurry of offense from Piper as Heenan says this is not fair to Flair. They actually end up on the outside of the ring very, very briefly. Clotheslines. Piper sends Flair into the railing and is tossed in quick. So any count-out rule that you want to abide by, it ends up, you know, I'm okay with the way that went down. Flair tries to kind of clothesline Piper on the rope, but Piper no-sells it by just kind of, you know, Flair sort of falls down and Piper doesn't actually go into the rope. And as he wags the finger at Flair, which I think he might have been calling the spot of like, yes, I'm going to do corner mount punches. But she gets to about six or seven. Flair does the counter where he brings him out of the corner for the inverted atomic drop. Piper shifts his weight back so that he avoids Flair's knee and does the three stooges eye poke. And I will never get tired of that spot. I mean, I know it's a little bit of comedy in this match, but it's so damn great. And he follows it up with an airplane spin. Which, you, I don't know how many airplane spins you saw on WWF programming from, let's say, 1987 to this very point in 1992. I mean, hell, IRS, when he comes back, he was the guy doing the airplane spin when he was Mike Rotundo. But he even he ain't doing it anymore. So there's a certain novelty to it. And then he locks in the sleeper. And, of course, Heenan's losing his mind at all this. Oh, come on. minutes for Flair and counting. Look at this! Fireman's oh. carry! Into an airplane spin! Oh no, come on! So long, Flair! No, you don't know where he's at! And a sleeper! That's what he won the Intercontinental! If he even gets some half groggy, half puts him out, he can dump him! I know he can dump him if that happens! Hot Rod could have taken him right out of there! I'm wondering if I'm completely off base to think that Piper versus Flair is a better rivalry overall than Hogan versus Flair. And I know that that was the dream match all through the 80s. But as you got into the 90s, yes, maybe people wanted to see that match. But once they ran it on house shows in 1991 and decided not to do it at WrestleMania, when you look back at it objectively, because you always had the politics with Hogan and Flair in that 
Flair was never actually going to go over in that feud at any point in time until, like, 1999, which was, like, a screwy finish at some stupid match at WCW where nobody was paying attention at that point because you'd already had the finger poke of doom. All I'm saying is, historically, we might be overlooking Flair vs. Piper, which is also very good in WCW in 1997, at least in my opinion. I mean, it was probably the last Piper feud of any note before I just really became sick of him in 1998 WCW, and he just became unbelievably annoying. And it goes back to that 1991 that Piper had, which is so great because he's the first guy that Flair feuds with, which was a natural rivalry because they know each other going way back. Of course, it seems like Flair knows all of these guys. So they get their little one-on-one here for two minutes, but now we got to add a little spice to it with number 16. He's got to get him up on his feet to throw him out, though. Who's it going to be? Jake the, the Snake Roberts. Trust me. It's an incredibly happy accident that Heenan and Monsoon at the same time, in stereo, say, Jake the Snake Roberts. It's this sort of ominous, foreboding tone, which, I don't know. Jake, at this point, is just red hot as a heel. Of course, little did we know that he's only going to be there up through WrestleMania. He's going to shoot his way out of town by holding up Vince for money before the match with The Undertaker, and he's going to get squashed. So Jake... Being the master psychologist that he's in, he's got Piper's got Flair in the sleeper. So there's no need for him to get involved because, and this is something I'm going to get into more later, he understands Royal Rumble game theory. So he's just going to sit there in the corner and hang out. But eventually, Piper, kind of an odd move, he, he turns his back while applying the sleeper to Jake. It just felt really, really dumb. And Jake sneaks up on him, attacks him from behind. It breaks up the sleeper. As Heenan is now, he's now in negotiations with a higher power, and I'm not talking about Vince McMahon, at least in this case, where he's doing he's doing a thing that I'm sort of familiar with, where you have to kind of cheer on somebody that you might have a great distaste for. Hey, don't remember, don't forget that Jake yelled at Heenan in the lobby for not inviting him to the Macho Man's bachelor party on primetime, which I covered several episodes ago. I think it was 133. So he's he's not a real fan of Jake either. But because he's helping Flair, it's like that time I had to cheer for the Penguins to beat the Flyers, hoping that the Bruins would sneak into the 2016 playoffs. Of course, it didn't work because the Penguins are a bunch of dicks and they probably threw the freaking game. But anyway, Hanan's doing the same thing with Jake. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Jake broke that up in a hurry. Look at Flair. He is spent. He's out of it. But you can't trust Jake either. We all don't trust anyone in the Royal Rumble, but especially this man. Flair's starting to move. Listen to the chant from this capacity crowd. Oh, the people. Look at Classy Eye. He's Classy Eye. Oh, look at this. Short clothesline. You know, You just said thanks, Jake. Jake actually helped Flair to his feet. So for a second, you're thinking, okay, solidarity among heels. They're going to gang up on Piper, try to get rid of him that way. But instead, because Jake's whole thing is, trust me, trust me, he grabs Flair's arm and does the short arm clothesline, which is very interesting in that the crowd actually reacts somewhat positively for that 
And then even more positively, when Jake does the thing with his hand to signal for the DDT. It's very interesting considering where Jake was at his point in his career and how everybody hated him for the thing going on with the Macho Man. He sicked a freaking cobra on Randy Savage on TV, and now he's being cheered because he did one thing to Ric Flair. We're now at a point in the match where the star power overall has definitely gone up. There's no more Hercules. There's no more Barbarian or Repo Men or any and any of that ilk in there. We got three stars. Even if Jake was never a world champion or anything, at this point, it's one of his hottest, hottest moments in time for his entire career. And now, he's when he signals for the DDT, he locks... This is one of the most famous parts of the match where Heenan... <laughs> He gets really, really funny at this point going forward. I think this is when he really starts to turn it up. Where Jake locks Flair in the front face lock to go for the DDT. And Piper charges out of the corner. And Heenan famously thanks him. No! No! Almost a DDT! I never thought I'd say this, but thank you, Roddy. It's a kilt. It's not a skirt. It's a kilt. Now, as funny as that is, given that Piper spit on the NWA title on the funeral parlor when Bobby Heenan carried it out there before Ric Flair's arrival, around the time of SummerSlam 91, the fact that Heenan is now walking back, any sort of criticism, Piper, it's not a kilt, it's not a a skirt, it's a kilt, I'm sorry, Roddy, but he, he locks, Flair locks Jake the Snake in the figure four, and Roddy is kind of off to the side, and he decides to kind of throw caution to the wind by putting the boots to both guys, and Heenan immediately takes it back. Oh, it's a figure four by Ric Flair on Jake the Snake. And look at Roddy, he's giving it to both of them. Well, you know, go freak, you skirt-wearing freak. It's not a kill, it's a skirt. I can't believe Flair's still on his feet. I'm soaking wet. When Heenan says that he's soaking wet, I have this image of him as Ted Stryker from the end of Airplane when he's trying to land the plane, but he's all nervous. It's just coming down all over his face. And one thought that's just occurred to me with these three guys, three of the greatest talkers in the history of professional wrestling, and Jake, Roddy, and Ric Flair, all three of them hosted talk shows at various points with you know varying degrees of quality, Piper's Pit being the most famous of them, Ric Flair's Flair for the Gold having the famous moment with the Shockmaster, and then the snake pit, which the most famous moment was Jake getting clobbered over the head with a guitar, which I covered a few weeks ago. So now for number 17, we, not, not really much of a decline in the star powers. We got Hacksaw Jim Duggan out, and he immediately goes after Flair as Heenan announces that he is losing his voice, at which point I, I, I get nervous. Like, please don't lose your if Bobby Heenan had lost his voice two, two-thirds of the way through this match, somebody bring this guy a green tea with ginseng stat. But Gorilla, he's now putting over Flair big time. I, I gotta say my voice. I gotta say this, Brain. Ric Flair has really shown me something. Even if he doesn't win this, which is highly unlikely that he would, he has shown me some intestinal fortitude, some tremendous conditioning. This guy is a great athlete. I mean, he's taking a beating. He has taken a beating. Just too bad he got number three. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second, and it pains me to do so because it makes me sound like one of those Wrestling Observer newsletter readers from the 80s who wanted to you know, name Gorilla Monsoon worst announcer of the year every time, although I guess he won more of them in, in the 90s. I, I'd have to look that up. But you can say that Gorilla may have been laying it on a little too thick with Flair. 
I mean, I could see that criticism, but I'm not going to entertain such a thing because this is my favorite match of all time, and I'm just, I, I really don't feel like listening to it. As Piper and Hacksaw are in the corner fighting like they're on Legends House in the year 2014, taped in 2012, of course, and Flair continues to bring the fight to everybody, hits a back suplex on Piper. He's not sending any messages to All Japan Wrestling, I, I, I can assure you at this point in the matches. They then trade shots in the center. And Heenan announces that this is not fair to Flair as Duggan comes over and makes it a two-on-one situation. I guess all is forgiven with him and Piper. But Heenan <laughs> takes this opportunity to just give a little speech. We were jobbed, Monsoon. We were jobbed. It's a conspiracy. Hulk Hogan has something to do with this. And look at, look at this. Flair had an opportunity there to step aside as the other guys were mixing it up. But no. Walked right in there, continued the battle. He's the real world champion, as far as I'm concerned. No matter what happens here, you've got to admit that. Look at him, he's still on his feet, he's still going. He's been slammed, he's been full slammed. He's been backdropped, he's been put to sleep, and he's still fighting. Why? Because he wants it. He's a champion. He's what a champion is made of. There he is, man. A champion to the end. I have to admit, I probably watched this match a hundred times, and that's not a speech that really ever registered with me until I was doing it for this show. But if you just heard somebody say that, he could have been saying that. Anybody could have said that, I guess, about Hulk Hogan in the mid-80s. It almost comes off like a babyface thing, except he's just advocating for his guy in the match like he's been doing this entire time. As we get number 18, and it is the aforementioned IRS, who's probably pissed off that somebody else used an airplane spin, and he doesn't get to use it anymore because he has to be ultra boring. He actually goes at Flair first, keeping up that theme, even though he is a heel. And then Duggan immediately, he grabs him by the tie, which Heenan <laughs> thinks it's his tongue, which is a bit that he did time and again when IRS would be grabbed by the tie. But I, I enjoyed Heenan's you know, reaction to IRS just slowly walking to the ring. Very methodical. I know IRS. I know what he's doing. He's calculating exactly how many deductions he's going to have to make. Who's going to be audited? Who's going to have to pay? I'd really love to expand upon that point, but I'm not sure how I could do that. You know, the Royal Rumble is an awful lot like a progressive tax system. <laughs> Then again, IRS, I mean, what other kind of jokes are you going to make? As Piper hangs on to the rope, and then Duggan comes over to actually save him. So clearly, they're cool now. We, we, we could film Legends House 20 years after this, as we get a flare flop just away from the fray. <laughs> like, apropos of nothing, just kind of in the middle of the ring, which not the place to be, as Gorilla Monsoon says. As they, they now start pointing out a little thing that's going on in the background that you really have to look for, which is Jake the Snake, every time that buzzer goes off, he immediately turns his head if he's not looking towards the aisleway to make sure that the macho man is not on his way out. It's the little things like that that made Jake great. Well, that and the fact that he goes after Duggan, his co-captain from the 1988 Survivor Series, allowing me to wedge in a reference to said pay-per-view. Number 19 coming out is Superfly Jimmy Snuka in the year 1992. He's wearing long pants and boots, and he's doing a light jog to the ring, and Heenan just briefly loses his mind. Superfly, Jimmy Stucker. Jimmy Stucker, I mean. 
See? He's jogging. He's wasting time. He's wasting energy. He's not conserving his strength or his time. He's not wasting time. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I know you don't. That was a great way for Heenan to get out of it. He's so overheated by the flare thing that he really does not know what he's saying. And it's a good way to back yourself out of a situation. We're so argumentative in this modern era, not so much in person, but on social media. And it's an important lesson to people. Yeah, you could also say, you know, use the time-tested comeback of, yeah, but still, but I don't know what I'm saying anymore. That works just as well. just seems like if you're in an argument and you say that line and you walk away, the whole thing is just de-escalated at that point. So when Snuka hits the ring, he has to actually hit Hacksaw to get to Ric Flair so that he could do his introductory spot, which is the Flair gets Irish whip and we get a chop by Snuka, a la the 1982-83 championship wrestling intro. The only thing is, Flair doesn't sell it quite as dramatically as Jeff Craney does. Although now that I think about it, I think that was Jules Strongbow and not Snooka. It was, Snooka's chop was to the great Tiger Chung Lee. Where, where's Tiger in this Royal Rumble? He should have been in there instead of Volkov. I think if you're going to have a foreigner fill in for Marty Jannetty, I think it should have been him. As Piper grabs Flair's nose... And it nearly, nearly tosses him. And unfortunately, we don't get any interaction between Piper and Snuka in this match. Although, the, the kind of flashback you would have had with those two guys would have been when they were on the same team in the 1989 Survivor Series, which I will defend on the basis that it had been five, five and a half years and you could have had a respect thing. It's the ones like Steamboat and Savage in 87 and Hogan and Orndorff in 87 as well that's kind of like, well, you know, maybe it's a little too soon for those guys. Or Jake and Earthquake in 1991 before Jake got pulled from the team. The Undertaker is the next guy out at number 20, which means he got a bad break because of the ridiculous Undertaker and Hogan are going to be 20 through 30, when it should have been 21 through 30, but I know I've kind of beaten that into the ground. Heenan says that death takes a holiday as Undertaker makes his way to the ring. And when he steps in, the first guy he goes after is Snuka and one shot and he's out of the ring. So officially, The Undertaker owns Superfly Jimmy Snuka now and forever. Between that and WrestleMania 7 and the fact that Jimmy Snuka more often in his second run from 89 to 92 was called The Phenom and then later that nickname gets transferred over to The Undertaker and he's known as The Phenom from that point forward. But when Flair decides to engage with the undertaker you know despite being in the ring for 35 minutes or so at this point the undertaker just there it, it's a pretty bold move stra- bold move cotton let's see if it pays off and Flair goes right after him. what is wrong with you that, what is wrong with you he's got a death grip around his neck right around the throat of rick flair it's over it's over Everything down the toilet. Why don't you show some mercy? Go down there and throw the towel in. Down the pipe. Everything. Um. Thank you, Duggan. Get him off him. Whoa! Two points. Figure I'd let that go for a little bit because there's an awful lot going on between the Undertaker softening up Flair for their WrestleMania match 12 years later at WrestleMania 18 and telling Brain to throw the towel in. Once again, Gorilla just twisting that knife with just uncommon glee. And it's the Undertaker after Duggan had gotten Taker off of 
Ric Flair, who kicks him in the groin with sort of a mule kick. I don't know why it's only two points in Enid's world. Maybe it's some sort of Canadian football thing that I'm not familiar with. Actually, I know a little bit more about Canadian football than you might give me credit for. I know a rouge is only one point. I think that's when you punt the ball through the end zone. As IRS holds Duggan for Undertaker to take shots at him. We get death and taxes, finally. But... (laughs) That tag team would just not come to be. In fact, they would be feuding by 1995. Not one of Undertaker's greatest feuds in the world, but then again, it is IRS we're talking about. As we count down to number 21, there's a palpable tension in the air because Jake the Snake's rival hasn't shown up yet, and he's looking back, and he's got to hide. Here comes our next entry! I think the verb you were looking for, Gorilla, was slithered, because snakes actually would slither out of the ring. But it once again, like when all the other times that a guy is outside the ring, it's for a purpose, and it's very brief as Jake slithers back in and goes for the short-arm clothesline on the Macho Man, who ducks it. You didn't really see that too often with, as a counter with Jake. And then he hits the double axe off the top after he stuns Jake, he kind of hits him with a knee, and it almost looked like Jake was going to go over the top, but he just sort of ran into the ropes. But now he's in position, and he does hit a knee, and Jake goes over the top rope and out. And we reach a very controversial point in this match, where Savage slingshots himself over the top rope and out, as Gorilla and Heenan point out that he has eliminated himself, which, according to precedent would actually be correct. But what's interesting to me is that Savage's athleticism actually cost him here. And here's why I say that is other guys would have, you know, gone through the, you know, climbed out of the ring like they would normally or they would slide underneath the bottom rope. But Savage is so athletic and so high flying that he just slingshots himself out over the top rope probably wasn't thinking about it. I don't know if Savage ever did like a shoot interview where he would have addressed this. I've I've never heard of it because I know it it certainly would have come up in my research, I think, at some point. And The Undertaker, he goes outside to kind of save his... I don't know what the nature of the business relationship of Jake and The Undertaker at this point is. How how they... Because Undertaker's the heavy... And Jake, I guess, is sort of the mastermind, but Paul Bearer is there. I guess he's just there to make funny faces. But Undertaker does the smart thing and just pretends like nothing's wrong here and throws Savage back in the ring, who then slides out underneath the bottom rope. But after Gorilla and the Brain had talked about, oh, Savage eliminated himself, you can kind of hear the wheels turning of... How can we justify this based on just saying that he was eliminated and now all of a sudden he's back in the match? It takes a little while for them to come up with an excuse. Savage with a hard knee and Jake is out of there. Savage is out too. Savage is out. He went over the top of the gap. We made a mistake of a lifetime. Undertaker went underneath that bottom rope, but I think the Macho Man has eliminated himself. I think he did. That's 
what happens when your heart takes over your mind. You can't let your, your loved ones control your pocketbook. Well, Undertaker threw him back in, but I don't think that's going to help him. Oh, I know what it is, Monsoon. Savage wasn't thrown over the top rope, so that means he can go back in. No one threw him over the rope. I believe that's one of the rules of the Royal Rumble. I'll have to check that out, right? I'll take your word for it right now. Well, see, the referee's letting him go back in. It's really a tough spot for Gorilla and Heenan because they saw Savage go over the top rope and they were marked upon it, but he's not supposed to be out of the match. And then you got people like me watching at home, on you know, living by the doctrine of stare decisis. I hope I said that correctly. I like to get my Latin law terms correct. And that is a term meaning the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent. And my precedent here is Andre the Giant in the 1989 Royal Rumble eliminated himself by sending himself over the top rope to escape from Damien, who had been thrown in the ring by Jake the Stake Roberts. So, I don't know, given all the fuckery that was going on with the rules, like, oh, managers could be there sometimes, but they can't be there at other times, who who knows what the rules were? You could, this is professional wrestling. We can just make shit up as we go along, which I prefer that you not do, but I guess, you know, with it being an entertainment program, I, I, I guess you could go ahead and do that. As Savage and Flair are facing off, kicking off a wonderful friendship that would last for many years with some of their best work, well, later in 92, but also in WCW in 95 and 96, which kick-started the business even before the NWO showed up. That, that should not go unremarked upon. And Flair is actually in control for a little bit as Gorilla, once again, is just astonished. But Flair, he's also exhausted and he resorts to desperate measures with The Undertaker. Flair is dishing out offensive maneuvers. Oh, he's, he just tried to lift The Undertaker. He did not. One way or the other, deliberate low blow. Number 22 is The Berserker, and Heenan takes a break from the comedy to make the important point that, well, this guy's specialty is throwing guys out over the top rope, so he should be considered a contender here. But once again, the Berserker would be one of those names where I would do the Howard Finkel and new with, you know, and new World Wrestling Federation champion, the Berserker. That's just not going to happen. You're more likely to see him in a feud with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who is the one he actually goes after. He doesn't go after Flair. It's very, very interesting. So we get, you know, two brawlers, Duggan being one in his own right, and Berserker is sort of being like the flea market version of Bruiser Brody. And by the way, I like John Nord as a professional wrestler. He also goes right at The Undertaker as well. Maybe a little bit of foreshadowing of their 1992 feud in the summer with the sword that goes through the ring. There's an interesting pair-off in one of the corners with Roddy Piper and The Undertaker. And I'm thinking of a feud with those two guys, and I really just can't imagine how that would go. I don't know if that has anything to do with me not being a good booker or anything, or if it's just really hard to imagine either one of them coming out on top in such a feud, so you, you don't know how it would go. So there's a lot of... You know, star power, a lot of super heavyweights now in there with Berserker and The Undertaker, and you still got Hogan and Sid to come. But Heenan, he's now, he's now going to actually use that six letter word that was always attributed, used towards him, and kind of says maybe Flair should think about doing that. 
Rapidly approaching 45 minutes. Weasel your way, way out. I never thought I'd say that. But weasel your way out if you have to. Weasel your way out. Do anything. I love that Gorilla's voice cracks because he's so incredulous because Heenan says the Flair should weasel his way out, a term that Heenan has hated for years when used towards him. As Flair tries to suplex Savage out of the ring, he's standing on the apron, but then Savage suplexes him back in, and Piper and The Undertaker are both choking Flair at a certain point, and once again, I'm trying to figure out the permutations of how those two guys could ever feud. I can't imagine... The Undertaker as the heel and Piper as the babyface in that feud. I I just think that that wouldn't work quite as well as Piper as the heel from the mid-80s with the babyface Undertaker. And you'd probably just do a bunch of crap finishes. But then again, that's pretty much the Orndorff-Piper feud that they did in 85, bleeding into 86. Number 23 is Virgil. And I'm sorry for my editorial laugh here because he, he, as I said, he was a top five babyface in the promotion in the middle of 1991. Once he loses the million dollar belt at the Survivor Series showdown in 91, things start to kind of come apart for him. Though I do like that Gorilla, I don't know if this is on purpose, saying that he is fresh and hungry on his way to the rank. But as I played in the intro for part one, Heenan has some concerns, and this is a comment that I've talked about with my friends in watching the show, especially in college, quite a bit. Don't forget, at one time, he had that million-dollar champion, Chappelle. Certainly did. Of course, he stole it, but he still had it. He did not. And look at this. Flair trying to get rid of Hacksaw. Just think, Virgil, he just came out, right? Yes. Number 23, right? Who knows how many bags he's gone through in the battle when you stop? The point was raised because is Heenan making a racial remark? And no, he's not saying anything about Virgil's race. What he's saying is he's a thief because he believes that he stole the million dollar belt, even though he was there at SummerSlam 91 and won it fairly cleanly, although there were some shenanigans with the turnbuckle, which is always DiBiase's kryptonite, and the fact that Sherry was thrown out of the match and it should have ended at a DQ. So that's where he's going with it. But the joke puts in my mind the image of Virgil somewhere backstage, like actually going through everybody's bag to see if they're carrying meat sauce with them or Olive Garden gift certificates. I don't know how many Olive Gardens there were around Albany, New York in 1992. I feel like that's the kind of thing I would usually look up. But honestly, it's not that important here. I'm I'm trying to actually stick to the match. But yes, fresh and hungry. I get some more Undertaker manhandling of Flair. Virgil went after IRS because they have some sort of tangential issue. I guess maybe because DiBiase teamed with IRS in a late 1991 match, and I think Virgil may have been on the other side of it. Piper and Virgil go at it for a little bit, which is interesting to see. Shades of Hogan and Tugboat from the year before, but Man, Piper and Virgil, they were thick as thieves for most of 91, as I said earlier, but there are no friends here, or at least no friends for Virgil, or so it seems even now in the year 2019, although the fact that he showed up on AEW television as living legend Soul Train Jones, he's been known as Virgil for 30 years, and now we're bringing back Soul Train Jones from Memphis. Oh, God, God bless Mike Jones. I mean, if we didn't have one of him, we would have to invent him, and speaking of people that if we didn't have we'd have to invent 
Colonel Mustafa, the former Iron Sheik, makes his way to the ring for a battle royal where he's going to have to go out over the top because he is not going to become a two-time WWF champion under two gimmicks from two distinct countries in the Middle East. But Heenan, again, he's nervous, and he's just kind of making comments on people coming to the ring, especially General Adnan and Mustafa, who's kind of doing a bushwhacker walk, but he's moving his arms slightly differently, so there's enough of a difference there that he can file for patent on it. For some reason, that's bringing up the image of Saddam Hussein sitting in a room in an easy chair, and he invites Adnan in. And I'm not going to, you know, reenact the conversation, but clearly it would end with, I need you to come back here to be one of my decoy Saddams. Remember when that was a thing during the Iraq War? I mean, no matter how you feel about how it went down back in 2003, the fact that Saddam had all these decoy Husseins, it didn't use Adnan LKC as one of them. It's actually kind of admirable. He thought so much of him as a general that he wasn't going to waste him as one of the decoy guys in order to make sure that he didn't get killed. Savage and The Undertaker are going at it, and that's another feud which I think is a little bit easier to imagine because I can picture Savage in either the face role or the heel role, unlike Piper, where I can only really imagine him on one side of the ledger on that feud. And Monsoon has an unfortunate slip-up, and and these would happen, I think, more after WrestleMania 8 when Gorilla starts to go downhill as an announcer, I think, at that point. And by the time 1994 rolls around, sad, he loses his son in the car accident on July 4th. You don't see him on commentary too regularly after that. But he refers to Ric Flair as Rick Martell a couple times, and it's really just kind of awkward because Martell isn't even there. The fatigue factor has got to be entering in here, especially on Rick Martell and Rowdy Rowdy Piper. But Martell still on his feet. I can't believe it. Maybe I'm just making excuses for Gorilla, but he's been out there for quite a while. Nobody's been bringing him hot dogs during this Royal Rumble. His blood sugar might be a little bit low. Maybe he hasn't had enough water. Maybe he's just got Rick Martell on the mind because he's coming out at number 25. And he goes at Virgil first, but that's really just sort of in passing because Flair comes at Martell. And now we get a reprise of that NWA-AWA World Championship match from 1984. I believe that took place in Japan. And then the next day, Flair and Martell teamed up against some sort of Japanese duo. I think... Uh, I think it might have been Tenru and Saruta, but uh, I know Saruta was definitely one of them because he was uh, an AWA champion just before Martel. Martel beat him for the belt. Martel does get Flair up in a fireman's carry, but really can't move him over the top rope. Mustafa gets eliminated unceremoniously, so he can go over the top rope in this particular battle royal. And Duggan, he's kind of the odd man out. It's always interesting when you have an odd number of people in a battle royal where the other guy is just kind of going around looking for something to do. Duggan has the perfect gimmick for that because he can just stare at the crowd with his tongue out like, 
like a complete dumbass and go USA USA even if like the rest of the rest of the ring is also Americans which isn't necessarily true because Piper's Canadian technically and Martel is Canadian technically since you know he's from Cocoa Beach Florida which I looked up where that was, and now I've already forgotten where Cocoa Beach, Florida is. When I was down there, I was like, how far is it to Mar-a-Lago? And I looked, I saw it was like 22 miles. How far is it to Cocoa Beach? And it just didn't register with me for whatever reason. But I don't think Martel, Martel actually lives in Florida for real, but I don't know if he lives in Cocoa Beach. But it was a pretty good kayfabe hometown for somebody who's going by the model. So to go back to my whole football game, basketball game, however you want to break it down, I'd say that this is the end of the third quarter. I know it's pretty long because it goes from number 15 all the way to number 25, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, how it's structured. Like I said, it's not going to be even. It's sort of like when you get a pizza and whoever cut it screwed up and made, like, uneven slices. I know I've done that with, with my grill pizza, but it's kind of hard when you're doing it in, like, an oblong shape like that. So with the fourth quarter here, we get number 26, which means it's now time to begin Mr. Hulk Hogan's very interesting night. It's the- The reaction is very strong for Hogan, which is interesting given what happens later and when he hits the ring, because in the background, and if you're going to have to look really close at this, there's a guy opposite hard camera, almost dead center, who holds up a sign immediately that says, Hulk who? which something pretty unheard of in a WWF crowd. Yeah, you'd have your occasional Hulkamania with the circle and the line through it. I, I forget what show that was at. might have been at WrestleMania 5. I know I actually have a picture of that, or I took the screenshot of it at some point. So very, very small elements of that that are now starting to make themselves known. He goes after Flair. And The Undertaker steps in because he's got that rivalry with Hogan dating back to the Survivor Series when, I'm going to say he more or less squashed him, but, you know, he kind of beat Hogan in a way that Hogan had never been beaten before in his seven, eight years in the WWF to that point. But Heenan, now with Flair in trouble, you get one more <laughs> super-duper heavyweight Hogan into the mix. So once again, he's he's just begging for some sort of divine intervention. Please let him win it, please! I'm sorry for everything I've done, everything I've said. Please let him win it. Will you stop begging? I'll never yeah, say anything still bad. On his feet. I'll never say anything bad again about anybody. Still loving to piss out some kind of punishment. If you remember a while back, I was talking about a Red Sox-Yankees game from 2000 that was Roger Clemens versus Pedro Martinez. It was 0-0 in the ninth inning. And I said to my then-girlfriend's brother that if Trot Nixon hits a home run, I'll never do anything bad again. And then Nixon hit a home run. And who I was channeling there, of course, is Bobby Heenan in the 1992 Royal Rumble. <laughs> Just thinking of that particular line. As Hogan clotheslines out The Undertaker, so he's going to get a bunch of eliminations. The Berserker quickly follows. And now he does the t-shirt tear. He hasn't even gotten that off yet. And once he gets the t-shirt off, he actually chokes 
the model Rick Martel with it, which is actually a callback to the year before because I think there was a similar spot where Hogan was choking Rick Martel with his T-shirt. Meanwhile, in the background, we, we got to get rid of a little bit of dead weight here, and there's no deader weight than Virgil, along with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who, who's perfectly fine, but he's not winning this thing, and they go out together, just sort of in the background, as Heenan is very confused, like, I can't, I can't see Flair, because remember, they're not ringside, they are more towards where the guys are coming out, the back of the entrance aisle, so he's looking for him on the TV, as Gorilla says, all you need to know is that Flair is still there. And now number 27 <laughs> is another one of those guys who's definitely not going to win. But that's not going to stop Gorilla Monsoon from giving him the sort of introduction that sounds like he's just reading it from the back of a trading card and just like reading off all of his traits or whatever. Skinner making his way down. Unorthodox style at all. The alligator man. Fresh. Ready to go. Well, he's going to do is spit right in your mouth. I would take it out of you. With the spitting, that would get you suspended for three games in today's NHL, and it's very hard to get a suspension like that laid on you in hockey. You can cross-check a guy from behind and injure him, and then cross-check him again when he's laying on the ice, and that only gets you four games, even if you're a repeat offender. Anyway, I probably shouldn't mention the Robert Bortuzzo thing, because I highly doubt that anybody cares, and it's really not going to hold up. If somebody's listening to this podcast three years from now, it's going to be weird. Like, what the hell is Winston even talking about here? But hey, I mean, it's Skinner. I mean, if I was going to take a time out to talk about something like that, <laughs> I mean, when am I going to do it? Heenan is, once again, must be suffering from dry mouth. I need something to drink. Hey, you stupid. Give me something to drink. I'm going to kick. Now, Bobby, this isn't Hogwild 96. You're not allowed to drink on the air as much as possible. <laughs> Although, then again, we don't know what he was doing on WWF pay-per-views. It's just that he was more engaged with the product. I mean, all I know is that if I was asked to be on the broadcast crew for a WCW pay-per-view after, oh, I don't know, the fall of 1998, let's let's draw it when the Ultimate Warrior shows up, I would probably need at least five, six drinks to get through that broadcast. There's a nice little battle between Roddy Piper and Rick Martel over by the ropes where Piper looks like he's on the verge of elimination, but then gets his feet up around <laughs> on either side of Rick Martel's head. And he kind of does that thing where he, he rings his bell, but instead of using your arms to clap, he does a similar thing with his feet. And Rick Martel does the most amazing sell of that, where he just acts like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to him, and he staggers over to the other side of the ring. As Flair, he's now engaged with Hogan, Irish whips him cross-corner, yells woo, and Hogan bounces out and hits him with a clothesline. Number 28 is the man who won the WWF World title at the previous year's Royal Rumble under the whole cloud of the Iraq War, the first one, Operation Desert Storm, about to start, and that is Sergeant Slaughter, as Martel dumps Skinner and then does that thing where he, he does the look-at-my-body pose, which is so great. In part because you think of Rick Martel and you think of Steve Kern, and yes, they're very much removed from what they were in the 80s, but it's almost like this little miniature battle of who was the top blowjob babyface from a tag team in the 1980s. I know, you said, well, where is, where is Ricky Morton, or where is this guy or that guy? But hey, you know, Martel and Steve Kern are, are two top contenders for that. I know Stan Lane is probably the... Uh, 
probably the more happening guy from the fabs uh, at, at least in terms of carrying it over into future years so slaughter comes out he, he, he does not strike me as a real threat considering what that guy has been through over the last six months with the whole i want my country back and like Okay, you saved Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a match against Jerry Sags. I I guess that's good enough for me. But hey, that's the power of Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the fact that he was able to kind of rehabilitate Slaughter all on his own just by handing him an American flag. In, In the middle here, we get a throwback to 1985 as Piper and Hogan are going at it. Not a lot of interaction with those guys in this run, although they did tag with each other around this point on some house shows facing off against flair and i believe the undertaker and so it's just interesting to see those two guys and once again goes back to my whole if piper had stuck around in 92 and turned heel I, th- I think there was definitely some juice in that lemon or orange or whatever fruit you would like to use for that as gorilla monsoon now announces that and, and he's been fudging the times on flair And that's something I'm going to forgive because it was a close enough situation, at least most of the time. It wasn't like one of those times where Gorilla Monsoon is saying that a 310-pound guy is up around that 400-pound mark. It it, it was close enough. I'm going to give him the approximation. So when he announces (laughs) that Flair has broken the record, Heenan says, uh, maybe it should be over now. He is right now the all-time record holder in excess of 55 minutes. Congratulations, hard order for Ric Flair. Give him the title. That's good enough for no, me. No, I'm not giving him the title. I'm telling you, Monsoon, if he wins this, I'll never say or do anything bad again. This is back when the Royal Rumble record actually meant something. You had Backlund breaking it the next year, which was a story that Backlund lasts all that time, so you think that something's going to happen with him, but then he loses in three minutes at WrestleMania to Razor Ramon, so it just kind of leaves you going, huh, like, why exactly did you do that? And then later on, you have Rey Mysterio, and before that, Chris Benoit, of course, you immediately had to break that record, which, good thing that you do, because... I mean, you know, that that's not something that was going to, you know, stick around for any time past, let's say, the 2007 Royal Rumble for obvious reasons. But there was one thing that 12-year-old me watching this in Massachusetts was waiting for. And there's only two guys left. And my favorite in this match is number 29, Mr. Sid Justice. And this is the point where I start to get excited because I'm like, Sid is going to fucking win this. Out of 30, we are down to nine people who could claim the WWF title. The seven that are in the ring and the two yet to come. Savage, former WWF champion. Slaughter, former champion. Hogan, four times. Piper, Intercontinental champion. And the real champion of the world, Ric Flair. Here comes another one. Oh, no. Listen to this place go crazy. I forgot about him. Well, let's be honest. Heenan only forgot about him because he assumed that Sid was, for some reason, not going to show up to the event like it was an indie booking in 2017 and he was going to blame it on Donald Trump's travel ban, quote, unquote. 
But yes, young me was very excited for Sid to become the real world champion. And I say that because he's the long-term champion of my wrestling figure universe, where I started my career as a pretty bad booker. There was no softball leagues or anything else to distract him. Sid was just the working champion that that Hogan was in the mid-80s. That That's who Sid was to be. When he comes in, it's a pretty good reaction. I don't think it's as good as what Hogan got coming in. But it's what Sid does when he hits the ring, I think, that may kind of tip the scales ever so slightly and perhaps in a way that could not be anticipated when Pat Patterson, Vince, and whoever are putting together this match. You get a throat thrust right to IRS at the beginning. And then (laughs) as he tries to get him over the top, says he has trouble getting him over. And I'm thinking, well, usually it's the other way around. IRS has trouble getting anybody else over. But Sid, you got Flair punching Hogan in the corner. So Gorilla once again proclaims how impressed he is. But now Sid is going to go over and he's going to grab Flair, his former horseman stablemate, I guess you could call it. And he wants to have a little discussion about a discrepancy in the horseman clothing allowance. I know that's the thing that I thought got Sid to join the four horsemen was he was given a large clothing allowance in the middle of 1990. And that's why Sid is wearing the tuxedo and looking menacingly in the background for so many of them in 1990. And also he had that special deal where he could reform the skyscrapers, even though Dan Spivey isn't a horseman. So he was kind of always an outsider. So I guess that's why Flair always has it out for him. And he grabs Flair. And this is the point of the match where it gets me every single time I remember watching it as it happened and just thinking, holy motherfucking shit, that Sid, he, he, Flair has him by the arm, he grabs Sid by the back of the hair, Sid does a flat back bump and then immediately kips up. A man of his size doing that just absolutely blew me away, and it goes completely unremarked upon on commentary, but... My GIF file that I made of that, I can't believe nobody had GIF that before me or GIF that. I'm I'm a GIF guy. I know I've said that before, but holy crap. I mean, just the physical gifts that Sid has, just because he broke his leg coming off the top rope in 2001, that's just proof to me he didn't have to come off you know, the second rope or the top rope or whatever. That, that was completely unnecessary. But the unspoken charisma that he had. All right, enough gush, gushing by me over Sid because he, he dominates for a little bit. And now number 30 is coming in. And these days they like to keep number 30 a surprise in some years. Other years they'll have a thing where, oh, if... Uh, the God, whoever the hell the Godwin is, if he beats Triple H in the pre-show match, he gets to be number 30 at the 1996 Royal Rumble. I prefer for it to be a surprise like it was something like John Cena in 2008, which was a true surprise returning from injury because people didn't think he would be back at that point. But number 30 is no surprise to Gorilla Monsoon, although Heenan has other ideas. We've only got one entry left. Secret involved here. The guy who drew number 30 is going to be coming out in five seconds, and there'll be no surprise. It is the warlock. But you never know. You never know what Tony in the WWF will pull on you. It can only be one guy. I told you, the warlord. I was right. I knew it. I was right. 
I'm trying to think who they could have gotten that would have been an even better number 30 than the Warlord as a sort of surprise guy if you were going to write out the Warlord because you know he's completely inconsequential to what's going on here. And the name that I've come up with that they could have conceivably gotten because they had the relationship with SWS is Tenryu and bring him in, give him a little bit of a run, have him in the final six or whatever. And yeah, he's not going to be in there for very long, but it's some exposure for that promotion. You could say, oh, well, he could be the WWF champion and take the belt back to Japan, however you really want to frame it. And that that's not something I wrote down. It's just something I was kind of thinking of because, like I said, the Warlord is fairly inconsequential. Flair, he rolls out of the ring and he pulls Hogan out underneath the bottom rope but because this is not the world war 3 1995 battle royal hulk is not declared eliminated and they do a suplex spot on the floor where flair goes for it but then hogan is the one who ends up hitting it it's fine because they go right back in the ring afterwards and sergeant slaughter he's irish whipped cross corner by sid and when it's Sergeant Slaughter, that can only mean one thing. He's going to do the huge bump, the Sergeant Slaughter Memorial Ring Post bump. He's not fucking dead. Well, that is somewhat surprising considering it's a 315-pound man who's over the age of 40 launching himself over a ring post and probably hitting the ring steps on the way down. I mean, Slaughter's not exactly a gymnast at this particular point in his career. We, we now get another hilarious Sid spot after the Irish whip and a big boot by Hogan onto Flair. As Sid has got somebody in the corner, I think he's got IRS in the corner, and he gets tapped from behind, and Sid turns his head in a very annoyed fashion, almost the same way like if my cat was sli- sleeping and I patted the cat, the way she would turn her head and be like, hmm? you know, something like that. Sid is very much like a cat. He's very beloved by a certain segment of the population, and he's not really going to go where you need him to go a lot of the time. So, quite frankly, that that's why he is the feline in professional wrestling history. But he and Hogan go over to work over the Warlord, and they quickly eliminate him. No surprise there, even though Gorilla Monsoon says, What a surprise, the Warlord out of there! As Piper grabs irs by the tie irs had piper on the ropes but irs gets his tie grab we learn now that is not a clip on and he gets tipped over and out by the rowdy one so now now we're down to some serious contenders here with roddy piper rick martell randy savage sid justice hulk hogan and rick flair Out of all of those guys, the only one who was never a world champion was Roddy Piper. And Rick Martel was an AWA champion when that still meant something. Flair and Hogan, obviously. Sid doesn't become a world champion until years later. And Savage had been world champion for most of 1988 and into 1989. Piper and Martel are in a battle over on the ropes. And Sid sees this. And he goes over and just pushes them out. You know, gives them a push in the ass. And they both go flying over the top rope. And this is where I start to think that Sid might be the smartest person in this match. Now, hear me out. And this goes back to Royal Rumble game theory, where you have to take advantage of the situations when they present themselves. If somebody is weak, you should try, you, you know, go ahead and try to eliminate them. But game theory goes into more of eliminate the biggest guy 
but we'll, we'll get more into more of that in just a second. But yeah, getting out two guys at once is pretty good strategy by Sid. So your final four is Savage, Sid, Hogan, and Flair. So when you have four of them, obviously they're going to pair off. And with three baby faces, it is interesting. Like, which one's going to be the odd man out? Hogan's going to pair off with Flair on one side of the dance floor. And Sid and the Macho Man, Sid immediately overpowers Savage and gets him up in the corner. But now Flair comes across, knees Sid in the back, who then bumps into Savage. So he goes over the top and is now finally out. So now we're down to three. Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, it's Sid Justice. And 12-year-old me is freaking out because... Sid has clearly been dominant to this point. He's been in less time than Flair and Hogan. So he's, in theory, the fresher of the two. Hogan and Flair are wailing on each other, although Hogan is no-selling the chops. And Flair gets Irish whip cross-corner, does the Flair flip, but does not go over the top rope because, God help us, can you imagine if Ric Flair does the Flair flip, goes over the top rope, and then falls to the floor by accident? I know he's done it a million times, but you have to be safe in this situation because if the finish to this match had gotten screwed up by Flair eliminating himself, which those things can happen. Steve Austin accidentally was eliminated in the 1996 Royal Rumble. He was supposed to be in the Final Four, but he was eliminated much earlier than that, so they had to improvise. Luckily, he was not going to be one of the Final Two, so it doesn't really stand out quite so much. As Flair gets punched, and then he goes flying over the top rope, but only onto the apron, and Hogan is trying to work on Flair. And once again, that great genius, Sid Justice, who understands Royal Rumble game theory better than anybody in the first five years of the Royal Rumble, comes over and says, okay, Flair is exhausted right now, so he is the weaker man. He is also the smaller man. Now, while I'm also big... Hulk Hogan is also big, and he has this reputation dating back eight years in this promotion. So, like, I'm sure Sid has read his share of books. I'm sure he's read Sun Tzu's The Art of War and how to prepare against your enemy. I mean, you have to take Hogan by surprise here. You know, facing him man up, Hogan's just going to no-sell your shit and wave the finger and give you the big boot, leg drop, one, two, three, or do whatever the fuck he wants to do in a Royal Rumble match. So Sid goes over... It eliminates Hogan, for which 12-year-old me is cheering like crazy when this happens because Sid is my new Hogan. And the crowd is visibly going nuts in the background. And they pop huge for this. And I don't care, you know, oh, you could rewrite it on the syndicated shows and, and piss me off. But I'll never forget what I heard. Oh, my God. Justice just watching. Flair once again hooking that bottom rope and looking from behind. Oh, Justice got rid of Hulk. Uh-oh. I don't like the looks of things now. There are no friends. There are no friends. Only enemies. Oh, is Hulk upset. In the heat of battle, Hogan has a right to be upset. But if he's mad because, oh, I got outsmarted by this bumpkin, Sid, no, Sid is one of the greatest geniuses who have ever walked among us, honestly. If anything, he should be upset 
that he turned his back knowing that there was somebody else in here because Hogan has eliminated guys from behind before. Hell, Hogan has eliminated friends before. Doesn't he remember that it kind of led to the dissolution of the Mega Powers a couple weeks later, back in 89? He eliminated his friend Tugboat in 91. Although, uh, I'll grant that Tugboat did come at Hogan first, so he, he may have had it coming in that case. All I'm saying is that Hogan should have been ready for anything, especially since they're saying every man for himself, every man for himself, and they've been drilling that into our heads for now five Royal Rumbles. And because Sid goes and eliminates Hogan fair and square, even if it's from behind, there's been so many eliminations done like that, we're, we're now supposed to think, oh, Hogan has been wronged somehow? It, it doesn't make any sense. And there lies the one problem for this match. Of course, it could be easily fixed. And it's simply by just flipping the two guys and have Sid dominating Flair. And then Hogan comes over and eliminates Sid in kind of a similar fashion to what you had with the Macho Man in 89. And now you can say, Hogan's playing by the rules. And he, you know, granted... He, he's playing by the rules. He eliminated Sid. He did it from behind. But you have to do what you have to do because it is every man for himself. And why they strayed from that to get, you know, a little too fancy, having Sid eliminate Hogan opened a possibility for people to pop for that sort of thing. They saw the 1991 Survivor Series, and they saw people popping for The Undertaker tombstoning Hogan on a chair and pinning him one, two, three. So it was, it was kind of a kind of a dumb thing when it comes down to it, compounded by the fact that Hulk Hogan has this new perceived enemy in Sid Justice because he eliminated him five seconds ago, that now all of a sudden he, his sworn enemy, Ric Flair, of the past decade, if you're going to include cross-promotional stuff, or, you know, in that sort of rivalry, or just the last few months, as Flair's been calling himself the real world's champion, and Hogan has been the champion for much of that time. Now, all of a sudden, Hogan's going to help Ric Flair win the world title? Unless you're thinking, well, Hogan knows he's not going to get a babyface, babyface match against Sid, so I've got to help the heel win so that I can get the WrestleMania 8 match. I don't know what it is. But in any event, I'm going to put all that aside, because the call of it where it's not edited for syndication. The original call at the end of the 92 Rumble. Oh, so good. He said, he said you stole my back. What the? Oh, hey, look at this. Hulkster holding on, trying to pull him out. It's flowing from behind. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I think the brain has earned the right to duck out a few minutes early on this day. You know, I think he's done a pretty good job with this match, advocating for his man, Ric Flair, the real world champion, who is now officially the WWF world heavyweight champion. Flair just ducks out of there like, all right, see ya. See ya, Hulk. See ya, Sid. I'm out of here. I'm going to hit the bar. I'm going to party all night long. 
<laughs> so Hulk and Sid have their face off in the ring now as Sid goes up, comes up behind Hogan, hits him in the back of the head. And now they're going to have a shoving match to get all the agents in the ring. And while Sid is, from my vantage point, technically in the right here, I think that he mistakenly hams it up too much as the babyface. In fact, he get he does the thing where he gets on one knee and puts his arms out. He even makes a gesture towards the Hulk Who sign in the front row. You really kind of have to look for that. But that's not something he should be doing when the long-term plan is for him to be the heel at WrestleMania as Sid purportedly wanted to be a heel facing Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania. That was supposedly the deal. And it was not good of him to do that if he wants to get over as a heel. You know, at some point, you have to be an asshole and you can't be playing up to the crowd, even if Sid was really good at doing it. But they finally separate these guys out. Gorilla's kind of left on commentary to make sense of this all. But as he's throwing it to the back for Ric Flair's triumphant post-match interview we do get to hear one final word from sid that'll just live on forever he is right now we understand we've got it going on let's go to beijing there you have it the final words of a psychotic man mr psycho sid i'll kill (laughs) you nothing has betrayed his west memphis arkansas accent for whatever that is quite like him saying i'll kill you in that way and get a picked up on the live mic at the end of the 1992 Royal Rumble match, my favorite match of all time. Let me just say, after Vera distorting the belt to proclaim me the real world champion, I'm going to tell you all, with a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. When you walk around this world and you tell everybody you're number one, the only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. And this is the only title in the wrestling world that makes you number one when you are the king of the WWE. You rule the world. Think about it like that, Mr. Perfect. Guys, the brain. Woo! Woo! Let's give a big one! Woo! I was never so impressed with anything I've ever seen in all my life. He went out there for over 60 minutes, never took a back step, took it to Hogan, took it to The Undertaker, took it to whoever got in that ring. That's why he is, hey, Bobby called now, we're, the real world's heavyweight champion. We're not the kind of guys to say, we told you so, but we told you so. <laughs> okay, very good. Rick Flair, you have made world... Put that cigarette out. You have made World Wrestling Federation history here tonight. It's the greatest moment of my life. I want to jump. I want to party. But I got to tell you like this. For the Hulk Hogan's and the Macho Man's and the Pipers and the Sids. Now it's Ric Flair. And y'all pay homage to the man. Woo! <laughs> I love it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up. We hope you have enjoyed your Royal Rumble. Well, yes, I have enjoyed this Royal Rumble, Mean Gene. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Ric Flair it comes off as something of a babyface promo, but you have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, put yourself in Ric Flair's mind, like from a kayfabe perspective, and strap that kayfabe hat on. 
He comes into this place where he's never been before on a full-time basis, claiming that he's the real world's champion, and now he has achieved the goal where he is the champion of this company. So, of course, he's now going to say that this is the best promotion in the world, that where you're the king here, you rule the world. And I know somebody might say, oh, they told him to say that to shit on WCW or whatever. I don't think it's really that. It's really just kind of braggadociousness and putting himself over. Either way, it's it's some great stuff from him. Not to be overshadowed by that mysterious person off screen who was smoking. That had to have been Pat Patterson. There's absolutely no other person who would have been... Maybe it could have been somebody else, but Pat Patterson, I know in his book... You know, talked about how he smoked it all and how Vince McMahon hated it. And maybe Vince said, hey, Gene, if you say, <laughs> goddamn pal, if you see Pat smoking, make sure you make light of it on the air. But he doesn't name him. And in Pat Patterson's book, except that it came out in 2016, it's not mentioned because he didn't really go into that much detail. Like, oh, yeah, I was the one smoking the cigarette that Gene Orkland yelled at, at in the middle of Ric Flair's promo at the end of the 1992 Royal Rumble. It's just one of those charming things. And they all just add up to not only, you know, my favorite match of all time, but one of my favorite pay-per-views as well. Do I say that everything comes back to the 1992 Royal Rumble? No, because it's not the 1988 Survivor Series. However, what I can do right now is complete the This Is Your Life, Ric Flair, from 15 through 30 that I did not do in Part 1. So without any further ado, number 15, Roddy Piper. Very close friends had feuds in the early 80s, early 90s, and late 90s, spanning the original Crockett territory to WWF to NWO-era WCW. Number 16, Jake Roberts. Teamed with Butch Reed to face Flair and Dick Slater in Mid-South. That was a match that I guess I found at some point in time years ago. Number 17, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. They had matches in 1985 Mid-South, but also a match in 1996 WCW which I linked to it, but I don't know if that YouTube actually still exists. I should check that out again. Number 18, IRS. As Mike Rotunda or Captain Mike, he teamed up with Jerry Price to take on Flair and Arn Anderson on an episode of WCW Pro in 1990. This is probably the most random one out of the 30. Number 19, Superfly Jimmy Snooker had a flair with feud with Flair in 1979 in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. Number 20, The Undertaker, which I went into a little bit during the match. Obviously, WrestleMania 18 at the Sky Dome, but they also teamed up on a Saturday night's main event shortly after this 92 Rumble in the match where Sid Justice turned on Hulk Hogan. There's also house show matches as well. Randy Savage, in addition to their WrestleMania 8 match and the angle with Elizabeth, their late 95 and early 96 program at WCW is credited for jump-starting business even before the NWO showed up, but I already told you that. Number 22, The Berserker. At a July 1992 show in Portland, Maine, Flair and The Berserker teamed up to take on Randy Savage and The Undertaker, which is neat because that's each of the last three guys listed. Undertaker is 20, Savage 21, Berserker 22, and now number 23, Virgil. They're on opposite teams at the 1991 Survivor Series. That's what I had to fall back on for that one. Number 24, Colonel Mustafa as the Iron Sheik, or one of his other names, teamed with Greg Valentine to take on Flair and Angelo Mosca at one point. Mustafa, best known as the Iron Sheik, was Hussein Arab at the time, so the match was likely between 1979 and 81 and took place in Toronto, which would explain Angelo Mosca's presence. 
Number 25, Rick Martel. When Martel was the AWA champion, he faced Flair in Japan. He also teamed up to take on Jumbo Saruta and Janichiro Tenryu, which I should have read that when I was going through the thing in the match and could not remember it. Number 26, Hulk Hogan. Even though we went all of the 80s without them crossing paths, they still managed to have many, many feuds. In addition to this WWF run, there was 94 through 96 WCW, 1999 WCW, TNA, and who knows how many independent shows. Number 27, Steve Kern. As Steve Kern, Skinner, as Steve Kern, he faced Flair for the world title in Florida in 1986. Another totally random connection. Number 28, Sergeant Slaughter. They had a match in 1985 AWA at the New Jersey Meadowlands, which I believe was released on the network as a hidden gem. I think that might be that December of 85 show. Seven years later, they met in the WWF on Superstars. Number 29, Sid Justice. Despite Flair denying Sid was a horseman, he most definitely was there in 1991 with his sizable clothing allowance. Like when he nearly killed Brian Pillman in that War Games match in 91. There was also the Saturday Night Main Event match with Sid turning on Hogan. And number 30, the Warlord was on Flair's team at the 1991 Survivor Series. So maybe I can draw a lot of links back to that Survivor Series, which I, you know, I don't like quite as much as 1988, but I could certainly watch that one anytime, except it also means I have to watch the this Tuesday at Texas pay-per-view because the 91 Survivor Series is basically a long infomercial for that one. Now, before I depart, I want, to, I want to do my plugs real quick for the friends of the show, the Our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn in the episode, I think, 154 this week. God, I, I, know, I know they're ahead of me, and they're always going to be ahead of me because, uh, well, we're, we're kind of on the same track as each other. Do check that out. It drops on Mondays, as well as the wrestling podcast about nothing with the trio of Mike Crockett, Brian Fury, and Brian Malonis of Ring of Honor Wrestling. And, of course, the sportscasters with my good friend Steve Bennett, who I collaborate with on on the Adams Division podcast, which we're going to have one out by the end of calendar year 2019. It's been a little stop-start with this, but we have everything prepped and ready to go. We just need to find the time to record, looking at the top 10 things for each of us from the year 1994. So do be on the lookout for that. Again, I thank you so much for listening. Leave a five-star review on Apple Music, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. Now that I've actually been able to get iTunes to update on my laptop, I'm, I'm not as anti-Apple as I was. Still hate the Apple Store, but that's just the way it's going to be. Now, as for this week's show, seeing that it's going to drop on Thanksgiving, I figured, what, what, can I, what can I give thanks for? And I've already done a lot of WWF shows in a row, so why don't I do something non-WWF to give thanks for? And who better than Lance Russell and Dave Brown and Memphis Wrestling? So we're going to look at Memphis from April 2nd, 1988, a parking lot confrontation. Well, it's one of a couple of famous parking lot confrontations between Jerry the King Lawler and Eddie Gilbert, hot stuff, who've been kind of running roughshod a little bit in Memphis and needed to be knocked down a peg. We'll see how that goes. And there's a lot of other familiar faces, including the debut in Memphis of Scott Steiner. So kind of interesting to see him at that particular point in his career. And he's not wearing a mask like he was in April of 89 when we saw him as, I believe he was called the Wrestling Machine. That was episode 50 in the archives. So that was a hell of a long time ago, and I really can't remember it. Again, thank you so much for listening, and do tune in Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.
Don't throw in the back. Now when you're stopped. But weasel your way out if you have to. Weasel your way out. Do anything. Don't get up, Rick. Stay down. By the time they get there, another guy will be on his way. What a great battle plan. That's why Hussein made him a general. It don't look good. It just doesn't look good. It's the oh my God, no! Please let him win it. Please. I'm sorry for everything I've done, everything I've said. Please let him win it. Will you stop begging? Just let Flair win it. I'll be a different person, I promise you. All you got to know, Brain, is that Flair is still left. All he's going to do is spit right in your mouth. Oh, no. Goodbye, Rick. something to drink. Hey, you stupid. Give me something to drink. I'm going to kick. Getting down to the nitty-gritty here in the Royal Rumble. You know it's not fair to play, and he's still in there. Give him the title. That's good enough for no, me. No, I'm not giving him the title. If he wins this, I'll never say or do anything bad again. Where's Flair? Get that camera on Flair. It is the Warlock. But you never know. You never know what Tunney in the WWF will pull on you. I told you, the Warlord. I was right. I knew it. I was right. I can't sit anymore. That's, that's definitely not fair to Flair to be there that long. Look at the beef. You wonder where the beef is? There's the beef, pal. Oh, my God. Uh-oh. I don't like the looks of things now. Big one! Woo! Woo!